This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Carlson. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another summer series episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. With me, as always, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. I love your enthusiasm, even though it's the summer. Almost, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's tough. In the summertime, not as much going on. We've got the playoffs, but as fantasy players, like I just can't wait to draft and to start watching box scores again to see how my teams are doing on a weekly basis. But in the meantime, we've got the summer. We've got all this time to plan and prepare and look at what happened in the last year. So I get excited for these episodes that we do over the summer series. Plus, we've got the actual NHL playoffs going on. We're going to give an update on some of the fantasy impacts of things going on there. Before we get to all of that, we got to mention... We are presented by DauberHockey.com. Proudly presented because it's the best fantasy hockey website out there. You guys know that we're not just BSing because we have a partnership and they're like linking our episodes and we're mentioning their thing. Like they are the best website. I go there all the time. So many great articles. All the stats. Like I use their stats to research the show and I go there for all the great content. It's just a fantastic site. So you need to check it out. DauberHockey.com. You sure do, and we like the site so much that we constantly bring up some of its content on the show as we're about to do this episode from one of our patrons, as a matter of fact. Yes, that's true. So let's get into it. Let's start with the playoff update. We've got three series to go. We've got the two conference finals and then a finals coming up. A lot has happened since the last episode, so let's just do a bit of a recap. But right now we've got St. Louis and San Jose, and very surprisingly, maybe, let's get into that, Martin Jones has had two straight shutouts to put the Sharks up two games to one at this point. We're recording Saturday morning. And I'm finding it very interesting. The whole goalie thing in the playoffs this year has been really fun. So many surprises. We've talked forever about Matt Murray and what he's doing in Pittsburgh. Also now Ben Bishop is injured. We could talk about that. Apparently Jake Allen is going to be getting the next start for St. Louis. So the allen Elliott saga continues on. But let's start with Martin Jones, someone who obviously we underestimated going into the season. We knew he was going to be the starter for San Jose. But I remember even Brian telling you going into our joint pool, like, maybe we should draft Martin Jones. You're like, eh, come on. He's probably not going to be that good. And and he had, he had a pretty decent season, like above average, I would say, or at least average. And now in the playoffs, he's helping push the Sharks. A lot of players are helping to push the Sharks. Martin Jones is one of them. I don't recall saying that for the record. Remember, I was saying that I want to draft Martin Jones as our third goalie. We had Lundqvist and Holtby as keepers. And then you were suggesting that we should draft someone else. And I was saying, I think Martin Jones might be the best goalie available so who did, after all the keepers. So who did we take? Cam Talbot. Okay, so I don't think I was saying that Martin Jones wasn't great. I think I was saying between him 
him and Talbot, I preferred Talbot, which maybe was a little bit foolish, but Talbot did well for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I didn't mean to get into that rabbit hole. I do want to talk about Martin Jones, though. Like, how do you feel about him going into next year? In a year coming up where we've been saying all along, goalies are not much of a sure thing. Like, aside from Price and Holtby, there's a whole slew of goalies that I could see lots of arguments for all of them being above or below each other including Henrik Lundqvist. Like, would it be crazy to consider Martin Jones over Henrik Lundqvist? Probably. I don't know. What do you think? Like, where does Jones fit in right now for you? Well, according to my tiering system, he's a pretty good goalie on a pretty good team. So that probably put him in the second or third tier. And to be fair, Elon, you are sort of right. I have shortchanged him for a bunch of the season, even including going into the playoffs when I was like, well, maybe James Reimer can take the net towards the end of the season or at the start of the playoffs if Jones falters. But Jones has not faltered. He's been very good. He's at the top of the table if you're looking at goalies who made it past the first round in terms of low danger save percentage, medium danger save percentage, adjusted save percentage, although his high danger save percentage is amongst, well, maybe the middle of the pack, so there's room for improvement still. It's all in a small sample, regardless. I think he's proven himself to be a legit NHL number one goaltender, which is what we were hoping from both him and Talbot going into the season. They were both backups who had had good spells, finally had a chance to step into this role. They both were able to handle it too. So a good year for goalies, a good year for Martin Jones. Going into next year, I feel like you can stay confident. It will be telling what the Sharks decide to do with James Reimer, though. If they hold on to him, that might signal lesser confidence in Martin Jones than we might feel he deserves at this point. But I think it will be very costly for the Sharks to do that and probably unreasonable. I don't see why they would hold on to a strong number two goaltender that's going to cost them more than he's probably worth to them because they have a solid number one option for now. Yeah, it's like if they hold on to Reimer then maybe that would signal blah, blah, blah. Like, they're probably not. Like, they've signaled that they like Jones by the fact that they've played him all through these playoffs, and he has signaled back to them that they made the right choice. And, you know, looking into next season, according to what we've said in our past episodes, I think we think the Sharks are still going to be as good. You said that you thought Brent Burns was still going to be great next year. You said that you think Joe Thornton will still be just as great. And then, of course, they've got Logan Couture, who's, by the way, leading the NHL in points right now for the playoffs. Joe Pavelski is amazing. So there's no reason to think that the Sharks are going to really stumble next year. They're great this year. They're probably going to be great again next year. And Martin Jones looks to be a big part of that. I would definitely draft him high. And maybe just because of his name not being as big as some other names like Tuka Rask and Roberto Luongo, you know, he might fall and he might be a nice steal in drafts next season. I don't think so. I think if this playoff performance resonates, especially if the Sharks do make it to the Stanley Cup Finals, I don't see him getting drafted after Luongo and Rask. Even though he might not deserve to be drafted ahead of them, he might still be drafted ahead of them. I don't think he's going to be flying under the radar going into next season. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be really fun to see where goalies get drafted next year. And I can't wait. As I always say every week, Schmore Goaliesborg. It'll come up sometime later, maybe in August or something. And then on the other side of the net, we've got St. Louis. Brian Elliott had been playing for all of the playoffs. Has been pretty good overall. He has a 9.26 save percentage on the playoffs so far. Was amazing against Chicago. Had a pretty good season against Dallas, except for a couple stinkers. But he hasn't been great in the last two games against San Jose. And now Jake Allen is going to get into the net. He did play one game against Dallas. He came in relief, made seven saves, and didn't let in a goal in a game that didn't matter at that point. Then he also came in in relief in the last game against San Jose. Two saves this time. So, so far, nine shots against for Jake Allen in the playoffs 
and no goals again. So what a great job he's been doing. I guess that earns him the start next game. Obviously, St. Louis is desperate. I assume at this point, we just don't know anything going into next year. Obviously, we'll have to see how the playoffs shake out. But it seems like probably we're just going to see another year of this, assuming both goalies are still with the team. Yeah, assuming both goalies are still with the team. It's really funny. We were getting to the point where the media was starting to really focus on the Brian Elliott story and how he is a number one goalie and never got the respect he deserved. We'd finally reached that point in the playoffs where he's earned it, and he and he has. He's taken the Blues on a long enough run. He has stolen some games, made some huge saves, but then boom, we're back to Jake Allen now, and we'll see if the articles start to be written on Jake Allen's redemption story in a few games. I'm not confident that he can do significantly better than Brian Elliott at this point. And yeah, I think it's way too early to start thinking about what their crease is going to look like in September or October. Even if Elliott or Allen recovers over the next, you know, eight games or however many more they get to play this postseason, it would be a little hasty to try and draw any real conclusions out of it. Yeah, would there be any bigger increase in goalie value than if one St. Louis goalie got traded over the summer. Like, how big would that be for Jake Allen if Elliott left or vice versa? Like, this is such a great team, and this would be such an amazing team to own a fantasy goalie on if he was a clear number one, but there hasn't been one for so long. It seemed this year at one point, like, it was over. Like, Elliott was nothing, and Allen was getting all the starts. Like, I dropped Elliott in one of my pools, but then, of course, we all remember Allen got injured, Elliott came back. The whole story, we've talked about it all the time. It's very interesting. We'll see. We'll probably just have the same conversations next year. Another big story in St. Louis is since they've been shut out in these last two games, a lot of people have been pointing fingers mainly at Vladimir Tarasenko, who I've been seeing a lot of talk on the Facebook group. A lot of people are thinking he hasn't been utilized like he should be. Though when you look at the overall numbers, it doesn't look that bad, but I guess it's like not as much power play time as people think he deserves. Obviously, Tarasenko has emerged as an elite player in the league. And Brian, what's your take? Has Hitchcock not been fairly using Tarasenko in the playoffs? I know he said something like, it's for veterans in the playoffs, you need to focus on veteran players. I don't know exactly what Ken Hitchcock's mindset is. Remember he had that comment earlier on when they were still against the Chicago Blackhawks, and he said, we want to hit them 70 times next game, which had been done like once in the last 10 years, and the team might have lost that game who did register the 70 hits. Like He's saying a lot of things that don't make sense, which make me think one of two things. Either he really is as clueless as he seems, or it's all a charade, and he does know what he's doing because he's got a team that is three wins away from reaching the Stanley Cup final in a very competitive field. And the way he's used Tarasenko has been a big topic on our Facebook page for, well, the duration of the playoffs, and was the article on Dabra Hockey that I was referencing by Cam Robinson, who wrote an article ruining the fact that Tarasenko was not getting elite level deployment, that in the regular season, he was being deployed like 50th in terms of average ice time. He had the 50th highest average ice time amongst all NHL forwards at even strength. And then he was 70th on the power play in terms of average ice time. Right, he wrote, nestled in between offensive dynamos like P.A. Parento, Radim Verbata, and Tyler Ennis. These are the guys he was among in terms of power play ice time. Right, so I took a look to see, I mean, it sure seemed, looking at the box scores night to night, that Tarasenko still wasn't getting his due in terms of ice time, but I took a look to see if anything had changed in the postseason, and not really. In the playoffs, Tarasenko ranks 52nd in average time on ice, getting exactly as much average ice time as Thomas Hurdle is every night. And that's no disrespect to Thomas Hurdle, but I think we consider Tarasenko to be in a bit of a different class. And there are actually different guys scattered around the 18 minutes and one second of ice time that Tarasenko is seeing. He's seen comparable time on ice to guys like Hurdle, Eakin, Fisher, and Brower on one hand, but he's also seeing ice time that's comparable to 
Rick Nash, and Ryan Johansson, Logan Couture, who are probably closer to the class of player that we're talking about here. Now a note on his power play deployment, because it sure looks inexcusable to be 70th out of all forwards in that metric when you could be one of the biggest game breakers in the NHL today. If you do some quick math, there's 16 teams in the playoffs and each team has three or four forwards that they're going to roll out on their first power play unit, which means that somewhere between 48 and 64 players are going to be seeing top flight minutes on their team's first power play unit. But Tarasenko finds himself ranked 72nd in average power play time on ice this postseason. And it sounds like I'm about to get really upset about that, but I'm not. I think it's actually a bit of a red herring because Tarasenko is pretty much seeing the second most power play minutes of all blues. He's technically third most, but he's like 10 seconds behind Jaden Schwartz. Only Alex Steen has seen a couple more minutes than both of those guys. And even strength is where it seems more ludicrous because there are five St. Louis blues who are seeing more ice then Vladimir Tarasenko is at even strength. He sits seconds below Troy Brower in even strength minutes played, which is probably inexcusable to some extent to be playing Troy Brower, even if it's just a matter of seconds. It shouldn't be even a matter of minutes that he's within Tarasenko. Tarasenko, in my opinion, should be played a lot more than Troy Brower. But as I said at the top of this little rant, I don't know if I can legitimately get too down on the choices Hitchcock is making with regards to ice time because it's working. The team is good. Their power play is strong. And it's really interesting. I I don't know how often I've seen a team go on this kind of a playoff run with such an apparent lack of love for their own coach, both, you know, the team's own fans, the team's own media, to the point that even a Stanley Cup, I don't think, could seemingly assure me that Hitchcock is back behind the bench next year in St. Louis. Yeah, and also at the end of the day, you can't be too upset with what Tarasenko is doing. Like, he has 13 points in 17 games in the playoffs. It was 13 points in 14 games going into the series. He hasn't scored against Martin Jones, but hardly anyone has scored against Martin Jones in the regular season. You know, he did just fine. He had 74 points. I'm definitely not worried about drafting Tarasenko in the first round of my pool next year if I get the opportunity. And with regards to the whole power play thing, it might just be that St. Louis is a really good team. They have a lot of good players, so they're able to give more even distribution between power play one and power play two and still have a good chance of scoring power play goals. I'm not too worried. Yeah, and on the other hand, Tarasenko is definitely out there when the Blues need goals. I mean, that's not necessarily a great strategy to only play your best players when you need a goal rather than when you're trying to protect or extend a lead. He is second on the Blues in time on ice these playoffs while their team is trailing. Steen is still first in that measure, and Brower is way down in like eighth. Right, and so let's move on to some people are disappointed about what's going on with Vladimir Tarasenko, but here's a player who everyone is disappointed in. And just a surprising thing overall, Washington Capitals got eliminated in the second round. A lot of people thought they were one of the favorites to win the cup this year, but they get knocked out by Pittsburgh. And a lot of people are putting some blame on the young players like Andre Burakovsky and especially Evgeny Kuznetsov, who, after having such an amazing regular season, 77 points in 82 games, he produced only two points in 12 playoff games. Big disappointment for people who obviously drafted Kuznetsov in their playoff pools, and I assume a big disappointment for Washington. And you know, Brian, Kuznetsov had already been sort of slowing down near the end of the regular season. If you look at the splits, in March and April, he only had 13 points in 21 games, which is a far cry from the point-per-game pace he was on for the rest of the season. So I'm curious to know, like, what happened with Evgeny Kuznetsov 
at the end of the year and in the playoffs that caused his production to decrease by so much. Yeah, so in the preparation doc for this episode, you wrote, did nothing. And I know you were just being glib, like just to quickly jot down your thoughts, but I really want to take issue with the conception, maybe it wasn't your total one, but of others at least, that Kuznetsov did nothing these playoffs. He had the second most individual shot attempts on Washington this postseason. He was tied with Ovechkin for the most shots on goal. He had fantastic possession numbers. He had a plus six penalty differential. He essentially was at the top of the charts for every offensive metric that you want to measure this team's performance by. The problem was he had a 0.98 on-ice shooting percentage. So not even one out of every 100 shots taken while he was on the ice during these playoffs, went in the net. He himself had zero goals on 32 shots on goal at even strength. He did have a power play goal. If he shot at his regular season shooting percentage, he probably could have bagged at least about three goals, which would have been second to only TJ Oshie and ahead of Alex Ovechkin for even strength goal production this postseason. So he might have produced nothing, but he still did a lot. And I don't think there's any reason to be concerned going into next season. This is actually... A pretty good thing, in my opinion, for anyone hoping to draft Kuznetsov next year. It might drop his value, though I do imagine the hype train for Kuznetsov is going to pick up steam again slowly over the offseason and be in full force by the time you do get to pick your roster. Well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he drops at least a round from where he would have been, you know, by the end of February when he was a point-per-game player all throughout the season, even though he was on the second line and the second power play for a lot of the time in our patron rankings which keep going along every day dave is posting on the facebook group time to vote for the next player we're up to number 40 right now we just voted Corey crawford as number 40 a lot of people are starting to say that we haven't put enough goalies in there and we're going to do an episode at some point talking about this whole list kuznetsov went at number 33 which would be i guess the third round in most standard pools i wonder if you'll be able to get him in like the fourth round i wonder if before all of this he could have been a guy that a lot of people would have drafted in the second round i'm just gonna be curious to see where he gets drafted and what he's gonna do next year like brian do you see him as a point per game player next year do you think maybe more like a 70 point guy 60 like how high do you think kuznetsov will go next year i think he can reach 70 point per game would be fantastic he showed that he could handle that pace for a long period of time this season i don't know if i'm ready to anoint him a point per game player over 82 games yet But I think it's reasonable to expect like 65 is a floor, and I think he can touch 70 for sure with upside to be as high as a point-per-game player. Yeah, so he might be a guy you'll be able to get as a steal. It'll be fun to see, actually. Remember, Brian, last summer, at some point when Yahoo and ESPN came out with their rankings for their fantasy platforms, it was fun to look at who was ranked too low, who you might be able to get as a steal. It'll be fun to see where they put Kuznetsov if they're affected by the low number of points in the playoffs and at the end of the regular season. Okay, one more thing about the playoffs I wanted to talk about. We've got to talk about the Pittsburgh Penguins and this HBK line of Kessel, Haglin, and Nick Bonino. At this point, Kessel has climbed to fourth in overall playoff scoring, first in the Eastern Conference, 17 points in 15 games. Nick Bonino has 13 points in 15 games. Haglin, 11 in 15 games. So all three have been amazing. And it really makes me wonder now where to draft these guys going into next year. Like, starting with Kessel, he's someone who, going into the season, everyone thought he would be a sure thing. He was being drafted in the first rounds of a lot of pools because they thought, oh, now that Kessel's going to be playing with either Crosby or Malkin, he's for sure going to get a lot of points, considering all the points he used to get playing with Tyler Bozak. He basically did not nothing, but he wasn't an elite producer for most of the season until Malkin gets injured and he gets placed to play with Haglin and Nick Bonino, two guys who we never would have expected. Neither of these guys were probably drafted in the majority of pools. 
Now Kessel's finally breaking out, and I'm curious to know how high would you draft Phil Kessel next year? Is he going to play with these guys next year? And then I also want to talk about how you draft a Nick Bonino and a Carl Hagelin. Well, Carl Hagelin, this is a bit of a reclamation for him. He went from the Rangers, where they seemed to not be able to find a role for him, to the Ducks, where they definitely couldn't find a role for him, to the Penguins, where... He is getting a chance to flourish. He's getting to play his quick north-south game. He moves all over the ice. He's a quick skater. I've been a fan of his for a while, but he's never quite been able to put up the fantasy production that people have hoped from him. I think if he stays on this line, it's reasonable to expect 55 points from him next year at least. Nick Benino, I wouldn't say the same, even if he stays on that line. I know Phil Kessel dragged Tyler Bozak to high point totals for years. Maybe the same thing could happen with Benino, but personally, I think Benino is a guy that you probably don't really need up high on your draft list. You can wait till the later rounds when you get into the sleeper rounds and maybe snag him around then. And Phil Kessel, well, he's still Phil Kessel. He's the same Phil Kessel he's always been. The first part of the season where everybody thought it was over for Phil and nothing was going to work. That was happening to the whole team. We've gone over this countless times. I don't think Phil Kessel should be any lower on your draft list going into next year than he was going into this last season. Oh, wow. Even though a lot of people were drafting him in the first round this year. Like, he used to be a point-per-game player, right? Two seasons ago with the Leafs, he had 80 points in 82 games. Then his last year with the Leafs, he had 61 points. It was a huge disappointment. Then this year, he only had 59 points in 82 games. And of course, we know that he had that horrible start, and he was good at the end only when Malkin got injured. But really, are you saying... I think a lot of people going into this year were thinking of Kessel as a point-per-game guy, especially now that he was going to Pittsburgh. Is that where you're saying you're looking at him going into this season? Well, from January 1st onwards, he was scoring at a 70-point pace. He had 38 points in 45 games. I know I'm conveniently cutting out the first chunk of the season, but I really don't think that chunk represented any of the Penguins' potential output. Remember, Sidney Crosby was struggling even in that time, and people were wondering if his time was up. So yeah, I think Kessel can definitely break 70. Point per game could be a tall order. We still don't know. Like, Malkin cannot be on the third line, right? Like, I I don't know exactly how the lines are going to shake out for next season. If Benino can hang on to playing with Kessel and Hagelin, or if Kessel's going to have to figure out how to work with Malkin again. Either way, I'm going with a 70-point floor for Kessel next season. All right, and you know what? That makes him really valuable because he's also such a great shots contributor. So if you're in a league with categories and shots is one of them, he really does help you. And he's leading the playoffs right now in shots. 63 shots in 15 games. Ovechkin is second with 62 shots in 12 games. But aside from Ovechkin, like Kessel seems to be one of the top shooters so far in the playoffs. And he had been like that when he was back with the Leafs. So yeah, Kessel's a really valuable guy, but I wonder, a lot of people got burned picking Kessel first in their playoffs this year. By the time he started heating up, they were already out of contention in their leagues. At least I know that's the case for Ryan, one of our patrons, who's probably shaking his fist at the podcast right now. Brian, we still have so much more that we wanted to talk about this episode, but before we move forward, let's give a second to say thank you to our sponsor, SeatGeek. While Kessel may be a first-round pick in hockey draft, SeatGeek would be maybe my first overall pick in my draft for deciding where to go to buy tickets to concerts or sporting events. SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on other sites into one place. You save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and SeatGeek will let you know if the ticket prices fall. Yeah, so if there's a game you're thinking of going to or some kind of event and the price looks a little too high for your liking, you just set an alert, and they're going to email you when the tickets fall to an acceptable range for you. And they likely will. I mean, this happens often, right? As you get closer to an event, the price does go down. Yeah, I wonder if the Toronto Raptors get blown out by Cleveland today, if the price for Game 4 will go down. That's something maybe I'll be watching on SeatGeek. And you can make the price go down yourself with a promo code from us, right, Elon? Yeah, SeatGeek is offering a $20 rebate 
to Keeping Carlson listeners for their first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is download the app or go to the site, buy your ticket, and put in the offer code KEEPING, and you're going to get that $20 rebate off your first purchase. So check it out. SeatGeek. Do they have a slogan? (laughs) Be a geek. Get a seat. There. That one's for free. Very generous of you, Elon. Let's get back to the show here. Okay, we've talked about the playoffs. Let's get into some retrospectives. We've still been sort of talking over the last couple of weeks about players who had really great seasons that were kind of surprising, and if we think they're going to be able to do it again. We still have a few more in that list. Before we get to another list, which has been growing, I have this big, long list of players who had disappointing seasons, and if we think they'll be able to bounce back. Before we get to that, maybe we'll get to a couple of them this week. But okay, back to last season, the Florida Panthers. We talked about Yager and UC Jokinen last year, but there are so many other players on the Panthers who did really well, and I'm so interested to see where all these guys are going to get drafted. Like, can all of these Florida Panthers players get drafted in the first six rounds or seven rounds of your pool? You've got Barkov, Huberdeau, Riley Smith, Vincent Trocek. All of them had these huge breakout seasons. Barkov and Huberdeau really are making themselves look like they might be elite like guys you could depend on for maybe 70 points. Maybe I'm getting too crazy. Barkov had 59 points in 66 games this year. Pretty close to a point-per-game pace. It would be nice to see him play a full season and see what he'd be able to do. Huberto, 59 points in 76 games. So maybe I am getting crazy, but also they're young. They're getting better. They're playing with Yarmir Yager, which is so great. Do you think these guys are going to take the step and get even better next year? Or do you think this is what we can expect for these guys from here on out? Here's a little tidbit just before I really get into things. Elon, did you know that over the last two years... Jonathan Huberto and Vincent Trocek have both had a higher points per 60 rate than Alex Barkov. What? Come on. Barkov had 59 points in 66 games last year. That's a 73-point pace. There's no way Trocek was higher than him. Well, this is over the last two years. Right. Okay, yeah. Looking back to two seasons ago, he actually only had 36 points in 71 games. I guess he really heated up at the end of the year. But this was the big breakout. It's hard to remember that Barkov is so young. He's only 20 years old. He really seems like an established star at this point in my mind. Yeah, so we're going to get to that. And it's really interesting to note that being a young player, you want to see constant improvement year over year. And Barkov is showing that. He raised his shot attempt, unblocked shot attempt, and shots on goal numbers for the third consecutive season. And he has entrenched himself as the team's number one center, both even strength and on the power play. He actually upped his total power play time on ice this season by 20% over last year, even though he played five fewer games. That's his total power play time on ice, not his average time on ice. And honestly, I don't feel like the onus of proof is on me any longer to tell you that Barkov is awesome. I think it's on you to tell me that he's not because he's shown more than enough both on the ice and on the stat sheet. And like you said, Elon, he's only going to have turned 21 years old by the time training camp rolls around in September. I was really high on him going into this year. I'm glad it worked out. And I think he can threaten for 70 points before long in an 82-game season as soon as this year. His line mate, meanwhile, Jonathan Huberdeau, has maybe a lower ceiling but should be every bit as reliable for production in 2016-17. Huberdeau's been a measure of consistency in terms of his offensive output. If you look at his point totals, shot totals, attempts, shooting percentage, power play points, they've all been very steady over the last two seasons, as have his rate stats. Like Barkov, he also saw a nice bump in power play time on ice this year, seeing about 10 more full power plays worth of ice time than he did the previous season. And Huberto was also young. He turns just 23 in June. He's only going to get better. If you're still marking him as like a maybe 50-55 point player, it's time that you updated your list to show that he is probably up to a 60 point player at this point. But of course, this would not be a Keeping Carlson segment from me if I didn't offer you some reason for pessimism. And here it is. Both Barkov and Huberto both had high 
on ice shooting percentages this past season. And so I'm going to take you for a quick walk down short-term memory lane to our last episode when I expressed some concern over Yarmir Yager's ability to repeat his point totals from 2015-2016. Yager's shooting success is probably the main culprit for Barkov and Huberdeau's inflated on-ice shooting percentages, and I expect those percentages to go back down if Yager can't find that same magic that helped him to those 66 points last year. And like I said last episode, I don't think he will find exactly that same magic. But the bright side is that Barkov and Huberdor are still very good young players. They're capable of making up for any discrepancy on their own. And the Panthers should have enough depth to shift things around if Barkov and Huberdeau aren't clicking with Yager the way it was last season. So to summarize, Elon, our preseason wager, Barkov versus Bugstad, who won? Brian, stop bringing that up. <laughs> well, I don't feel like I've, have I been officially recognized for it yet? Yes, you were right. I said at one point, like a year ago, when I was young and dumb, that I thought Bjorkstad might be as valuable as Barkov. Clearly not. I'm clearly on the Barkov side now. I agree with you. I think Barkov is at least a 70-point guy. I just want him to stay healthy. Okay, so we'll put that issue to bed. I feel like we should get a trophy with all of our main wagers. Like, Pavelski's name should be on it when you won two years ago. Now Barkov's name should be on it. I wonder who it'll be this year. Actually, the interesting question in Florida, Elon, is who's going to be their third highest scorer? this year. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, that's what makes the conversation for Florida so interesting. You've got Barkov and Huberdeau, I guess. I would probably just pick Yager because he did lead the team in points this year. And I know we said he's going to drop a little bit, but he could still be good for 60 points if he could stay healthy. But yeah, then you've got Trocek, Riley Smith, Yuri Hoodler, Nick Bjugstad, and then you've got Aaron Ekblad, who probably is not going to hit like 60, but he might be good for 40 or 50 points. So much fantasy value on Florida. And I'm not sure, though. Maybe they're not all as good as they seem. Like Vincent Trocek, 53 points in 76 games. But that was like really out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting Vincent Trocek to be a fantasy relevant guy this season. I think a lot of us were surprised at the beginning of the year when he started to produce like he did. And I assumed it would just fall off. And it clearly didn't. Like, how do you project him next year? Do we see him as a 55, 60 point guy like he was this year? Well, Elon, I will save my answer until after I've explained it. Nice try getting it out of me right off the bat. Vincent Trocek had actually been a guy, though, that had been on our radar through 2014-15 and into this season as somebody who you could pick up for a little bit, add to your lineup. He could be good for a nice little run of points, and then you could drop him when he's done. But he hadn't really had an opportunity until this season to consistently strut his stuff. He became Florida's undisputed second center after Nick Bjergstad went down to injury in December, and Trocek made the most of it. In fact, he didn't really change his game a whole lot in terms of his rate stats. He was just getting a lot more minutes to work with where his rate stats could translate into counting stats. But there is one thing that does stick out, and that is his shooting percentage. It doubled. He was shooting about 7.5% for his career, and last season he scored on over 15% of his shots. Now, you'd expect me to say something very specific here, but I'm actually not going to. I'm not ready to call that necessarily unsustainable. Or let me qualify that for a second. I'm not ready to call that wholly unsustainable because Trocek was in a new role and he seemed to find another gear in his game. He was doing things on the ice that we hadn't seen from him in previous years. And he was also making his teammates look better. Like he seemed like a well-rounded centerman who was not just benefiting from luck. He put up numbers that looked very much like those of a second-line scoring center. So even though I expect some regression, I wonder if the 7.5% he was shooting on his career before this season might seem as low 
as this 15% from last season seems high. So to go back to your original question, Elon, 60 points, 55, 60 points, I think that's a tall order. I don't think I'm asking him to improve on his 53 points from last season. I think I'm asking him to stay in that 50 to 55 point window. Though he will need to have some of last year's shooting luck roll over to this year to help him get there. So what was your answer, by the way? Who do you think is going to be third on the Panthers in scoring? Yeah, you know, I actually don't have one at this point. There's Trocek, there's Bugstad, there's Yager, there's Smith, there's Jokinen. Those are five names that could potentially be the third highest scorer. Maybe one of them could be the second highest scorer, like Yager scored more than Huberdeau this year, so maybe it'll be Huberdeau. I don't know. If I had to pick one, I think I might go Riley Smith, just because I'm most certain in his spot on the depth chart. Maybe Yarmer Yager would be my next try, but as you know, I'm not as high on him repeating this past season as I am on other Panthers being able to repeat or improve on theirs. Hmm, okay, so I don't think we have a bet there. I would probably take Yager over Riley Smith. I don't think that's bet-worthy, though. So we'll have to keep going. Let's try to keep track of... if I think there was something earlier in the summer series that we disagreed on. I wish we could remember. If anyone can let us know, or one of the patrons let us know in the Facebook group, or tweeted us, at Keeping Carlson. Next, I actually teased this last episode. I wanted to talk next about some of the 2014 draft class. These five players provided so much intrigue in this year's fantasy season, and especially because I feel like a lot of them bounced around. There was a time when each of them was the one that we were most excited about. Like, I'm talking about Sam Reinhart, Leon Dreisaitl, Nikolai Ehlers, Robbie Fabry, Dylan Larkin. I feel like the season started, Larkin had such a hot start. He was the main talk, and I guess Nikolai Ehlers also had a really good start, but quickly Ehlers fell off of the top six in Winnipeg, and so Larkin was the guy. Dreisaitl wasn't even on the team. He was in the minors. Then at some point, Dreisaitl came in, took the whole NHL by storm, was, as we have talked about, was like on a hundred and something point pace for a lot of the first month of his time with the Oilers this year. He was pretty good for the rest of the year, started to fall off near the end. Then we had Ehlers at some point came back. At some point, Fabry, right near the end of the year and going into the playoffs, he's been amazing. He's the one who's still around, has 13 points in 17 games right now. Then you've got Sam Reinhardt, who I'd like to think of as like old reliable. He never was blowing anyone away, but he had a really solid rookie season. 42 points in 79 games. I expect him to go up next year. Brian, let's do an old-fashioned ranking at this point. Maybe you want to give some analysis first, but I'd like us to try to rank going into next season's drafts, you know, assuming standard categories, mainly points. How would you rank these five guys? Larkin, Fabry, Ehlers, Dreisaitl, and Reinhardt. And is it fair for me to say that I think all of them were surprising this year. Like, all of them, I think, had bigger impacts than we expected. Are there any of these guys who you expected to be as good as they were? Okay, well, I'll answer your second question first. Just quickly, I would have hoped to see seasons like these from Sam Reinhart and Nick Ehlers. Those are the two guys that I was most hopeful about at the start of the season. And I suppose Dreisaitl to some extent, too. But that group got bigger, and let's look at all of them. So I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of things at you at even strength. I looked at all of their numbers and I ranked them and I can tell you who was at the top in certain things and who was at the bottom in certain things, who was middle of the pack. And the first thing that jumped out at me was that Dylan Larkin actually crushed the field in primary points. Those are counted by adding only goals and primary assists. So you drop secondary assists from that total. And he had six more primary points than anybody else in this group, which was a sizable gap. Larkin also had the second best points for 60 minutes, the most individual shot attempts per 60 minutes, the most individual shots for per 60 minutes. So he was at the top in a lot of good ways. Leon Dreisaitl is the one who had the most points overall at five on five and also the highest points per 60 minutes. But he also did that 
on the strength of his numbers in secondary assists. And secondary assists, the reason that they're dropped from that primary points measure is that they can be less reliable in figuring out whether a player actually played a real part in creating a goal. Sometimes it's just considered noise if a player happens to luck into picking up a secondary assist. So Drysaddle benefited from a lot of those. Drysaddle was also dead last in individual shot attempts per 60 minutes and individual shots for per 60 minutes. So it's interesting that he was the only one higher at even strength than Dylan Larkin at points per 60 minutes, but he was dead last in any shot attempt or shot on goal metric. The thing with Larkin and Dreisaitl to me is that they were so different in the first half and the second half. Like, especially Dylan Larkin, he had 33 points in 48 games before the All-Star game. And if you even, like, zoom in on just October and November, he had 18 points in 24 games. Like, he was playing, like, a top player, like a 60, 65-point player. Then by the end of the year, he fell to only having... 45 points in 80 games overall and he really disappeared for the last couple of months like five points in 14 games in March only one point in five games in April so it's you know all of these stats you're giving are really interesting but they're for the whole season for me it's almost like at this point I'd want to throw it all out and just be like which Dylan Larkin is going to show up next year I guess you'd assume it's going to be an improved version over the end of the year just because he's so young he's going to grow and same with Leon Dreisaitl like I already mentioned how he was so hot 37 points in 40 games pre-all-star break and then only 14 points in 32 games post-all-star break as opposed to, you know, the Fabrice and the Ehlers in the list who were so much better at the end of the season. Or I guess Ehlers was just good at the beginning and at the end and then was slow in the middle. Yeah, so Larkin and Dreisaitl were both surprising because I think they had a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde season, each of them. But the surprising thing about Dylan Larkin is just how well he stacked up to all these other guys in the year-end numbers despite finishing the year as poorly as he did. He had just 12 points in his final 32 games, but he still managed to top the list in so many ways. One thing I would like to see sussed out with him next season, though, is the symbiosis between him and Henrik Zetterberg. How did that all work? Like, how did it go down? Did he go cold because Zetterberg went cold? Was it the other way around or something else entirely? That's something I want to know going into next season, because Elon, you already talked about Henrik Zetterberg earlier in the summer series, and well, we had a little different opinion of where he might end up, but it wasn't all sunshine and roses looking ahead for Henrik Zetterberg. And Drysaddle, on the other hand, I mean, I wasn't surprised to see the red flags that we see for him. You mentioned that maybe they're just very different players, he and Larkin, and yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so down on Drysaddle for a shot attempt and shot on goal numbers, because maybe he's not a trigger man, maybe that's not his bread and butter. But at the same time, I'd like to see him look like he can pull more of his own weight before anointing him a sure shot 65 plus point guy one day. And we've talked about our concerns about him also that he has played worse for more time than he has played better if you look at his career on a large scale. Now, of course, he's getting older and things might improve and line mates and such and all that changes. But just saying, I still think I need to be sold a little more on Leon Dreisaitl before buying in completely. And I'm ready to sound like a fool if it turns out that he just goes on fire for all of next season because I felt like a huge fool for a good chunk of last season. But let's pay some attention to the other guys in the group too. Robbie Fabry led that 2014 draft class this season in goals per 60 minutes. He also played the fewest minutes of any of these guys. So you can't put a lot of stock in the fact that his counting stats are a lot lower than many of the other guys in this group. If Fabry had played the same amount, his rate stats suggest he'd be a lot closer 
to the lead in rote points scored. He had 37 points this past season, but I don't think that does his game justice, and I think his performance this postseason has justified that perspective. Sam Reinhart puts in a good showing when we look at their individual expected goals scored rates. Now, this is a stat that we haven't actually broken down on the podcast. Maybe we're going to wait for it, uh, maybe in a later Summer Series episode, but essentially, expected goals is a better predictor of future production than Corsi is, which is, well, we learned that Corsi a while ago is not a great predictor of future production, but expected goals for could be something that works for us, and maybe I'll present it in a later episode. Just know that it's good to be high on it, and his individual number was good. He had the second highest individual number behind only Dylan Larkin, while Robbie Fabry had the lowest. Reinhardt also led all those guys in power play time on ice, followed by Leon Dreisaitl. I imagine Everybody in this group is going to see more power play time as they get older and move further into their careers. But Reinhardt is the one who was given the reins the most right off the bat. And finally, I haven't said a whole lot about, well, maybe a little bit about Fabry, not a whole lot about Ehlers. Uh, Those are the two guys who had the smallest power play time on ice samples. So they played the fewest minutes on the power play, but they also had the highest points per 60 with the man advantage. So that might have been the case because they had smaller samples than the rest, and, you know, they didn't get to play another 30 minutes in which they didn't score any power play points. But just something worth noting. I was actually surprised to see Ehlers and Fabry looking as middle of the pack as they did, though this is a pretty good group to find yourself in the middle of, and I expect both of those guys to see increased roles for next season. I think of this whole group, maybe not the highest value, but the best stealth value, like the guy that you could probably draft the latest in your draft, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, Elon, might be Sam Reinhardt. He was actually picked the highest of all these guys. He was second overall in 2014, picked only behind Aaron Ekblad. But Aaron Ekblad started in the NHL immediately after being drafted. Reinhardt didn't, and I think that made his name value drop a little bit. He should keep seeing a lot of ice time with Jack Eichel next year and should be a sure thing to improve on the 42 points that he picked up in 2015-16. Yeah, I definitely see lots of reason for Sam Reinhardt to improve, and mainly because he did his best when he was playing with guys like Ryan O'Reilly, Evander Kane, like Jack Eichel, but like especially like O'Reilly and Kane, those were two guys who were injured for a lot of the year. If Buffalo could be healthy, that could only be good for Sam Reinhardt because he was finding himself on the top line and the top power play with these guys, especially Ryan O'Reilly. I think that he's going to be the key. They were really good together. And if O'Reilly could just stay healthy, I think that's going to be really good for Sam Reinhardt. And I think a similar thing goes for Nikolai Ehlers. Like he was so good when he was playing with top players. Like once Andrew Ladd was officially gone and Ehlers found himself on the top line with Wheeler and Little and then eventually Wheeler and Shifley, that's where he really heated up. Like what a great end of the season for Nikolai Ehlers. 10 points in 12 games in January, 8 points in 12 in February. Then he had 8 points in 11 games to end the year in March and April, an unfortunate injury in the middle there. If I had to pick one guy right now for next year, I don't know. My gut is actually telling me, let someone else take Dreisaitl and maybe Larkin. And I would try to get Ehlers out of there just because I'm really excited about Winnipeg. Maybe I'm always overly excited about Winnipeg. But I just think Wheeler is going to continue to be a 75-point producer. And I see Ehlers and Shifley being right along with him just because they were so amazing at the end of the year. Yeah, of that group, I'm also going to side with Ehlers as the guy that I think I'd be ready to take first out of those five. Reinhardt would be close. Uh, Larkin definitely gave a lot of reason to draft him first, but I feel like somebody else is probably going to take him too high in my league, especially if they're a Red Wings fan. 
One more name, Elon, that I want to throw in there belatedly. I, we just broke down the whole list. But a name that wasn't in it, maybe should have been Sam Bennett over in Calgary. He had 36 points in 77 games, just one point less than Robbie Fabry. Bennett had a couple hot rents here and there. We talked about him on the show. In fact, I think he was the name for one of our episodes. And he showed that he had talent when things were clicking for him. It just wasn't happening on a consistent basis. There's a bit of a question mark hanging over all the flames right now. We don't know what direction that organization is going, both with player personnel and a coach. They haven't hired one yet, but Bennett, whatever the plan is, should be a key cog in the Flames' plans going forward. Yeah, I guess really the thing with Bennett is who's he going to play with? Like, if he could get on the ice with Monaghan and or Godro, I'd feel great about having Sam Bennett. But if he's going to be playing with, like, anyone else on the Flames, it's not too exciting right now compared to some of these other guys who all have great talent. And I think a guy like Leon Dreisaitl, the reason why I'd be afraid of drafting him is just Edmonton. It's so unclear who's going to play with who. Like, I could see Dreisaitl playing the whole year with Taylor Hall and, like, Jordan Everly, or I could see him being on the third line playing with nobody. It's like, it's really hard to know what's going to happen. So that's why I would rather just take a guy with, like, Ehlers, who I think Winnipeg is going to put him on that top line. Anyway, it's going to be really fun to watch. And who knows if now the 2015 draft class will break out next season. Though I guess already Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel already led the way. Brian, do you see any names from the 2015 draft class that you think will break out this year aside from those two guys? Well, the two guys who were drafted after those two, Dylan Strom, who could make the Coyotes next year, and Mitch Marner, who might have a shot to make the Leafs. Those guys are both doing just fine in junior and should be able to put up some good numbers should they make it to the NHL. There's a lot of hype for Ivan Provorov coming out of Russia. He's going to come up as a defenseman with the Philadelphia Flyers. He's had a good season with the Brandon Wheat Kings. And another defenseman getting big hype going into next season is Zach Wierenski with the Columbus Blue Jackets, who are forever looking for a power play quarterback. Perhaps Zach Wierenski maybe not immediately can step into that role, but someday could. There have been a lot of glowing reviews of his play. And not to go completely off the rails, but you mentioned Ivan Provorov, and I've seen some mention on our Facebook group, people saying he might challenge Shane Ghost's Bear for that number one power play spot on Philadelphia next year. Is that something people need to be worried about when drafting Ghost Bear? Something to keep in the back of your mind. I don't think it's going to happen immediately. Maybe it eats in, like maybe it means that Ghost Bear can't put up 55, 60 points, but I still think Ghost Bear is going to be one of the top blue line producers okay yeah well that will be the kind of thing that when we're putting out podcasts during training camp we'll be watching and seeing what philadelphia is doing and if Provorov's going to make the team i'll throw out one more name just in case it helps me look smart at this time next year travis konechny for the philadelphia flyers he was picked 24th overall in the entry draft i've seen him a fair amount because he's played his junior career in ottawa he looked fantastic there he recently was traded to sarnia did amazing things for them there. Junior production happens for a lot of people. A lot of these guys, you know, can put up 90, 100-point seasons in junior and maybe end up being like 40, 50-point NHL players. Travis Konechny has some real good scoring potential in Philadelphia. I don't know if he'll make the club this year, but when he does, he's going to be somebody that I will be watching closely. Such an Ottawa fanboy. Good for you, Brian. Okay, so last week we talked about a lot of older players like the Joe Thorntons and the Yarmer Yagers. Now we've talked about a bunch of really young 20-year-old players. How about we go with a guy in the middle? We have to mention, in terms of players who surprised us this year, or, or did he surprise us? Kyle Palmieri on New Jersey, 25 years old, right in the middle there, right about to hit his prime, and he definitely had his best season of his career. 57 points in 82 games after having 31 points in 71 games being his highest two seasons ago with Anaheim. But Palmieri came in, 
he wasn't even on the top line for most of the time. Like, I remember it was Henrique, Stempniak, and Camilleri leading the way for New Jersey. But then Palmieri was just there, always seeming to chip in points. Like, clearly, like, twice every three games, approximately. 222 shots on goal. Just a really solid season. 30 goals, by the way, in that 57 points. Definitely someone, if he were to put up these numbers again, that would be a guy who'd be worthy of being drafted. Like, pretty decently early in your draft. 57 points and 30 goals is not so easy to come by. Brian, do you think Kyle Palmieri is good for this production next year, just like he was this year? Yeah, so Kyle Palmieri is interesting in that he put up a career-high point total, but he actually put up his lowest even-strength shooting and shot attempt rates of the last five years. His points per 60 was also a far cry from better production rates that he carried from 2011 to 2014, and actually very similar to the rate that put him on just a 50-point pace at best in 2014-2015. And if that wasn't enough to tell you that Kyle Palmieri's not looking so good under the hood, he did what he did with a high IPP, which means of all the goals scored while he was on the ice, he registered a point on 88% of them. That's about 20% higher than it should usually be. So while on one hand, it's good to be like, well, you know, maybe he was a key part in the double scoring while he was on the ice, and that's why he deserves to get those points, it's also unlikely that he's going to continue to get to be that involved into next year. But okay, going back to his poor rate stats, how did Palmieri manage to set a career high in points, essentially playing worse than he ever has in the NHL or as bad as he ever has in the NHL? So that IPP is definitely part of the equation. There's two even more basic explanations for this, though. The first is that he stayed healthy. He played all 82 games. And the other is actually related to that because he saw on average over three and a half more minutes of ice time than his previous high mark per game. Per game, yes, good clarification. So, well, in the past, he'd never seen more than 14 minutes and 6 seconds on average. This year, he saw, well, he saw top 6 forward minutes. He saw 17 minutes and 48 seconds on average of ice time. But okay, Brian, then I would come back and say, I assume he's not going to go down in ice time next year. It's not as if New Jersey has all of these great stars that are going to come and take his spot. So assuming he could stay healthy again, I assume he'll have the same ice time. And then even if he has those poor rate stats, maybe he can't even do even better if he has better rate stats. Okay, so you could look at it that way, but any improvement in rate stats will be offset by the IPP regression that we're bound to see. There's also another big reason that I haven't yet hit on for his increased production last year. Of his 57 points, 23 of those came on the power play. That is the biggest role he's ever played on the power play. And those are a product of fairly elite power play production. If you look at all forwards in the NHL who played more than 100 minutes with the men advantage this season, Kyle Palmieri ranks 16th with over six points per 60 minutes. He's in a class of players that he does not touch if you look at these stats in an even strength context. Just ahead of him, you've got Ryan Getzlaff, Nikita Kucherov, Patrice Bergeron. Just behind him, you've got Kyle Lukposo, Corey Perry, Patrick Sharp, Ryan Johansson. These are not fair comparables for Kyle Palmieri. I don't know that he can continue producing at that rate on the power play next season, so I'd also expect some regression there. I know that might not be fair because we haven't seen him play with that much power play time and not do as well as he has. That was the first season last year where he was given that much responsibility and was able to cash in on it. I'm just not sure if that's something he'll be able to continue to do given that his even strength numbers did not necessarily improve. And we know that on a power play, you know, it's a smaller sample, anything can happen. And so the numbers that he puts up there are less reliable than what we've seen him put up at even strength. 
All right, so it sounds like you're saying maybe take away at least like five power play points, maybe take away a couple of even strength points due to the high IPP. And where does that leave us? Like maybe more of a 50-point guy and not a 57-point guy? Can we at least give him that? Yeah, I'd look at him as more of the archetypal New Jersey devil of years past. Maybe 50, 55 points would be the high end. I would not expect him to improve on his 57 points from last season. Although he has some experience under his belt, he's still not an old guy. He can still improve. Not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying I'm not counting on it. So you're going to let someone else draft him as a 55 to 60 point player? Yeah, and I'd kind of be surprised even if they did. I mean, he's not the coolest name to pick up or to want to see on your fantasy roster after draft day, at least in my opinion. So I feel like he could even end up as like high-end free agent fodder after drafts are finished. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Like, on the other hand, he was playing mainly on the second line. Like I said, he's a right winger. Lee Stempniak was on the top line for a lot of the year, and he obviously didn't end the year with New Jersey. It'll be interesting to see if he ends up on the top line in the top power play playing with Camilleri. Can you imagine if Camilleri could be healthy for a whole season? That would be really good potentially for Kyle Palmieri if he plays with him. So I guess there's potential. I wouldn't just forget about him in your drafts. If people are drafting him as like a 55, 60-point guy, I agree with you, Brian, that he should pass. But if we're getting to the end of the draft and we're looking at 50-point guys, I think I would take Palmieri. I think he's a pretty good bet to at least get 50 points. Like 222 shots is nothing to sneeze at. That's a great number of shots. And you expect to get a lot of goals. Maybe you won't get 30 goals, but I think 25 is within reason. Maybe I'm more optimistic than you about Kyle Palmieri at the end of the day. Okay, so on the Kyle Palmieri plus minus, we're setting it at 55 points. You're saying over and I'm saying under? No. Did you even listen to what I said? (laughs) (laughs) I was just trying to set up an easy bet to win. (laughs) I'll do over 49.5. No, because I've said the same thing. Okay, so we are in agreement. Let's move on. And I guess let's leave it here for this episode. Next episode, I promise, will be the one where we finally talk about all of the disappointing players from this season, if we think they will bounce back. Lots of interesting names there. I know we want to talk about Claude Giroux, like Ryan Eugene Hopkins, just to give you a little taste, Tuka Rask. That'll be in a couple of weeks. But if you want to hear from us sooner, we've got our next patron cast, the May patron cast, a live show just for the patrons of Keeping Carlson. That's coming up this Wednesday evening. So if you're a patron, make sure to check it out. We'll give the link to the blab on the Facebook group. If you're not a patron, during the summer, we have a promotion going, as you call the promotion. You can become a patron of Keeping Carlson, get all of the perks, like joining the Facebook group and coming to patron casts for any amount of money. If you just give us any donation on Patreon, you could be a patron and come to our patron cast. So why not throw in a buck? Come to the Patreon cast, see how you like it this Wednesday. For more information, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Regardless of that, we'd love to hear what you thought about this episode, so you could tweet at us at keepingcarlson. If you like the show, why not throw us a five-star review on iTunes? That would always be much appreciated. And with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, read us the credits. All right, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Corsica Hockey Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Own the Puck, War on Ice, Roto World, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. All right, Brian, great job. Looking forward to talking to you at the Patron Cast on Wednesday. And then in a regular episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carl Sand.